problem that you're facing is very simple and technically you can fix it quite easily and it doesn't involve a lot of people or anything like that, then by all means use a technical fix for it. But what's really important with an adaptive leadership is that when you're working on an adaptive problem, that part of the, the thing that you're trying to solve is yourself. So what kind of mental models do we have about how we solve this problem? What kind of structures do we have in our organization that's creating this problem? Good day and welcome to the Manage Self Lead Others podcast, mainly for experienced and aspiring people managers. I'm your host, Nina Sunday. Listening to this show helps you explore ways to become the best version of yourself at work as a manager. In each episode, you'll hear from some of the brightest business minds on the planet who share your passion to elevate and transform team culture. They share insights in self-leadership and leading others. Together, we can make workplace culture better. Are you ready? Because it's time to manage self-lead others. Kirk Fisher, originally from Boston, USA, now living in Melbourne, Australia for 24 years, has delivered face-to-face training for my company, Brainpower Training, for over a decade and is our key facilitator in Melbourne, Australia. Kirk is an experienced senior leader as Principal Director of Learning and Development at Workplace Training Advisory of Australia and Director and Head at the National Excellence in Schools Leadership Institute. Kirk is accredited in adaptive leadership and executive coaching and is a thought leader in cultural change, communication and leadership. Welcome, Kirk Fisher. Oh, thank you, Nina. Great to talk with you as always. One of the models you talk about, because you recently ran a customer service workshop for Brainpower Training, our company, and you sent me the flip charts at my request. And one was moving from chaos and complacency to congruency. And I went, ooh. Well, I just framed it in terms of, uh, uh, you know, how do we show up at work? How do you want, you know, this is not only a question for you as an individual, but it's a, a matter for teams. How do we as a team want to show up? So, so as I understand it with this model, um, people turn up to work and some workplaces are just chaotic and that's where there's high turnover and um, you, you know chaos when you see it. <laughs> Often busyness is a really big uh, feature of such a place, but are we being busy or are we, are we working well is a question. Default purpose of any team is to keep things the same the way they always were and never change. <laughs> Part of adaptive leadership is is understanding how to problem solve and make decisions and to see decisions as being one of two types, technical and adaptive. Is that uh, can you tell us more about that, please? If a problem that you're facing is very simple and technically you can fix it quite easily and it doesn't involve a lot of people or anything like that, then by all means, use a technical fix for it. It's rare, more and more rare to find such uh, uh, easy fixes in a lot of workplaces. But uh, when, it, uh, when a problem does become social in nature, as it involves a number of people involved with it, is dynamic in nature or it's changing over time, when there are multiple goals and so forth, then we have to start to look at more deeply into what's going on. And so uh, one of the ways of talking about an adaptive, so that's more, that relates to systems thinking as well. But what's really important with an adaptive leadership is that when you're working on an adaptive problem, 
the the part of the, the thing that you're trying to solve is yourself. What kind of mental models do we have about how we solve this problem? What kind of structures do we have in our organization that's creating this problem over and over and over again? Adaptive wicked problems is just a process that comes out of adaptive leadership where once a week, um, you get together or once a month or whatever it is, and uh, if you decide who's who's got the adaptive problem for this week. Let me uh, take a step backwards actually from that and describe how this actually impacted on a team. I was working with the executives uh, from a large New South Wales governmental agency, and these people were very, very highly educated and high performing and so forth. And they were miserable in their jobs and they didn't know how to impact on some of the things that were happening. And... Um, and I'm, we went through in the process of training and, and, and working, workshopping with them, we went through this process and it really lit a fire for them that they could look at a difficult problem that they didn't have, know how to solve and, and come to deeper terms with it, come into deeper terms with it. So the way this works is it lasts for 25 minutes. So that's important. It's simple, easy to do. And for the first five minutes, the person who owns the problem, who brought the problem to the group, uh, just tells what happened with the problem. And after that end of that five minutes, they have to shut up. <laughs> they are not oh. allowed to say anything until the end of this process. Oh, and that's important when we t we can talk, you know, go back and talk about why that's important. But then the group, and this is typically done with six people. So you have one person who's bringing the problem five people who are discussing it, they then look at the problem together. They didn't own the problem beforehand, but now they're starting to look at different perspectives on it. They're trying yeah. to take it apart and understand it in a different way. And the person just has to listen and t they can take notes and so forth, but they're not allowed to ask questions. They're not allowed to say anything. The, the next period of time is that they then make some recommendations about what they would say to it. And then at that final per point, the last five minutes or so, oh. the person is allowed to... to he, you know, respond back. It sounds to me like the people participating in a wicked problem learning circle would have to be given guidelines on how to actually discuss it and problem solve. Because if people default to blame, uh, justification, accusation, it's going to, it's, it, it'll be toxic, you know. So they ha we, we have to train people in how to problem solve in a, uh, and critique in a, well, in a, uh, op well, optimum way, uh, a positive way. I mean, you can't have, you can't have artificial harmony at the same time. So it's that balance, you know, yes. of telling the truth, but telling the truth with respect and with honesty and uh, authenticity uh, and, but holding back blame and, 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 and negative tone and all those negative things that actually remove psychological safety from the process it has to be psychologically safe so, is there a trick to deciding which problem you're going to brainstorm example from me from me mm. when we started doing this in my team um one of the things we identified was that our meetings were very long uh we'd only get together once a month but it would last all day and we didn't we weren't really we, we often felt you know, angry and bitter at the end of the meeting. <laughs> Just it wasn't, you know, necessarily uh, always pretty. Some of the things we were doing I said, so how, how can we do this? The, the problem is how we're holding meetings. So we, we identified this as a problem and just started putting different structures inside the meetings. One of the structures, particularly at the end of each meeting, always on the agenda would be an after action review.
this is something we took from the military, you know, and the military does this great. After every event, after every mission, after every learning situation, they do an after-action review, particularly what uh, went well, what didn't go well, and what we change for next time. Right. And we minuted that. And often the most important part of the, that meeting was that after-action review. How right. did this meeting go? How do we have to change in order to make that meeting, this meeting better next month when we get together? Right. An ongoing process of changing. And it, by the end, we did this for many years together. At the end, we loved our meetings and felt so enriched and like we were learning together. Oh. It was a very powerful place to work. And for that reason, among yeah. others. Problems are so complex. The worst thing we can do is rush towards a solution. And you know what I have a say, saying, which is always look for the second right answer. You know, we talk about in adaptive leadership, we talk a lot about having a set of practices that support um, the work of that organization. And that's one of those practices, practices that can help you to think more intuitively or to, to keep from rushing into solution um, and, to, and to adopt when, it, when the problem is complex, a, a, a willingness to stay with the unknown until it actually the problem does start to solve itself in a way. Sounds like these are all models around problem solving and decision making. Is that right? Yes, or I would say that they're about becoming aware uh, that how do we hold our awareness? Uh, it's so difficult to um, to maintain awareness when we're faced with uncertainty, for instance. So here's some skills you can do to develop your, in the face of uncertainty or complexity and so forth, here's how you hold your awareness in a steady way. What's crossed my mind is, can you give me an example of an adaptive problem? Well, an adaptive problem is a problem where uh, the current capacity of the group can't solve it, that we, uh, we don't have a problem, uh, that the, the problem isn't a, a, an easy fix, something that we can do that flip a few switches or do a couple of behaviors differently, that the group as a whole has to change. For example, I worked with a group of engineers up in Brisbane, and um, they highly skilled uh, people from all over the world, they had a very uh, uh, specific set of skills around uh, energy production that I won't go into, but um, they were feeling very disempowered about their work because they had a very uh, powerful CEO who continually changed strategy on them and, uh, and then just handed it over to them and they didn't feel like they knew how to deal with this problem. When they and so of course it was easy to blame the CEO. It was easy to blame the you know, nature of the organization in in that way, but when we took it up as an adaptive problem and started to work with what's actually happening, they saw that one of the things that they were holding as a mental model that was creating part of the problem is that they felt like the CEO had all the power, but then they realized that if the CEO um, uh, didn't trust them, he wouldn't be giving the problem back to them to solve in the first place. And so they started to do some little experiments around the edges of this, where they just took the power, where they just started to make decisions, where they just started to uh, solve the problem the way that they had been thinking about it. And so it became, an over time, it became a really empowering process for them to see this is an adaptive problem, not a technical problem. Right. And as an adaptive problem, this is about us thinking that we can't make a choice ourselves. Hmm. And um, so essentially the big umbrella idea is that it's important to have a purpose-based culture 
and that the culture is the strategy. But what you're saying is that culture is the strategy and that if you focus on culture, the results and effectiveness automatically follow. Is that right? That's right. That um, when we're talking about congruency, uh, we naturally always are forming a purpose as, as human beings. Just we naturally have a sense of, you know, a reticular activating system and our brain is seeking a goal and finding it. We often have, we'll have default purposes that don't necessarily take us in the direction or produce the results that we want. But every organization, every team has exactly the structure it needs to create the purpose that it's holding. So if you want to look at what the team is doing, uh, what the team's purpose is, look at what they're doing. And if you want to change that, you have to change the system itself that's creating that outcome. Uh, that and it's... It's also looking for patterns, isn't it? Yes. I mean, this is where, uh, you know, le leading people is goes beyond managing people because you're, you're on the balcony down looking at the dance floor mm -hmm. and you want to see the patterns that are both toxic and uh, uh, create effectiveness. So you want to be able to route out the toxic behaviour and it could be simple things like lack of appreciation, lack of respect. So all you can, what you can do is bring in a culture of appreciation and gratitude. It, mm -hmm. it, it goes back to those simple, simple things about how do we operate interpersonally with each other. You're right. it's, it's not rocket science in, the, in that way that when a group does have a sense of that we do have a choice about how we're going to show up. And we do have a, a sense of that uh, when we are focused overly on the status quo as opposed to how, you know, what is actually, you know, customer service, what is actually making impact on the on the clients that we work with and so forth, or that the purpose we serve. When we have a sense that this is what we need to put at the forefront, the, the actions, the practices, the habits of that organization flow on naturally from that. You know, a really good, strong sense of what the purpose is that we want to be creating creates, you know, strategy, creates HR practices, creates how we recruit uh, and everything uh, when that is when that that strong sense of vision is there. Uh, but oftentimes we we don't really question that. And, and, and that's why, you know, the complacency and chaos often uh, reign supreme just because we just haven't questioned it for so long or we don't really understand what's actually happening underneath the water line of what's happening, happening in our organization. So we don't see it um, as, as, as the purpose that we've defaulted to. Uh, okay. So just in closing, Kirk, um, for, for a manager leader that's listening to this, What's the one thing they could start doing that, if they did do, what would could transform the culture and make it less complacent? Uh, look, obviously, if you if it's chaotic, you want it to be at least complacent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because complacency is the next step to to congruency. So, what's the one thing they could do to make their culture more congruent? The one thing they could do to to start with would be to start to develop the balcony view with their team. And that can mean just having meetings once a week where you're checking in, uh, where you're uh, able to ask questions uh, that, that matter, when you're able to uh, share at a, at a personal level. And uh, the the manager can start by role modeling this himself. Here's, I remember it was so powerful to me when I had a, a boss who came back from some work that we were doing and said, 
I really fell down today. I, I didn't do the work I should have done. And I, I know I could have done better. I'm going to look at this and, and do a better job next time. That vulnerability uh, created a sense that, oh, this person is really interested in the work. It's not just interested in look, appearing powerful as a boss. And it created more willingness to be vulnerable myself. I, I look back over, over my life and uh, someone asked me recently, you know, think about the best boss you ever had. And I wrote a list of about 12 before I was self-employed. And I went, none of them was the best boss. They, some had redeeming uh, features and others had distinct <laughs> negative qualities. And, uh, but, but the thing is, I think going back decades, the culture really didn't have the same focus that it does now. It was all about efficiency and following rules. But now we've got this whole trend towards focusing on culture because it does lead to purpose and profit. Well, and, and Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy say it so well in their book, In Everyone Culture, they said that most people, most days, are working a second job. And that second job is image management. That because we are not working for ourselves, oh. the sense of ourselves, we're always having to protect ourselves from being seen to be, you know, our status, our power, our ability to stay in the job. It takes, imagine, you know, looking at your people and say, they're only working for me part time, even though I'm paying them full time. Half of their time is spent with image management. And, and, and so that's, the, that's where culture really comes into this. We can create a culture where we can free people up from that sense of having to, to stay with compliance. So they can bring their authentic self to work and they don't have to wear a costume, wear a disguise and yeah. hold back. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's all about sharing a little bit of yourself with, yeah. with psychological safety. If you're a workshop facilitator, you know when you go into a workshop and, you're, and you totally feel like you understand what their problems are and you're totally focused on what their needs are as opposed to how am I going to look smart in this workshop? It's a totally different thing and be free to, you know, to, to see what's, to you see 360 degrees where you might've only seen a very narrow band before. That's right. That when, when I'm talking about how to cure nerves, conquer nerves in presentation skills, I say, focus on what the group needs from you, not about the effect you're having on the group apart from people reading, of course, but yeah. not how do, how are they perceiving me from an entertainment or a, or a, or a, you know, acting point of view. And I've had, I've spoken to of trainers that kind of go, well, you know, it's all a performance. I go, well, it isn't actually. Mm -hmm. it, it is, it's about a communication. Mm -hmm. And what is it that those people need from you that you can give them? And if you mm -hmm. focus on them, you won't be conscious of, you know, unnecessarily about that, that turns into, that it turns into nerves. Can't uh, fake that either. People really know when you're tuned in with them, you know? Yeah. And it has to do with eye contact and trusting yourself that you know your content. And as long as you focus on the people in front of you and see them as human beings and talk to them conversationally, mm -hmm. they will, they will respond. Well, you and I are both facilitators, so we understand the whole, this whole process. So it's great. Look, Kirk, it's always fascinating speaking with you. You were in an earlier episode in, in the early days of this, uh, of this um, podcast. So thank you very much for your time today, talking about adaptive leadership and uh, adaptive problem learning circles. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's the sort of work that um, you can do in Melbourne, Australia, 
with our clients in that city. So, but thanks for sharing it to the world. Great. Thanks, Nina. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thanks, Kirk. This episode, we've been speaking with Kirk Fisher on the Manage Self Lead Others podcast for experienced and aspiring people managers. I'm your host, Nina Sunday. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.